Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, Scott, stand up. Scott Murray, stand up. Now, Scott, the video was just excellent again, and um, I just want to say, yeah, we appreciate you, even though you are sometimes strange. Is that okay? Yeah, we love you, buddy. Good job, man. Sociologists tell us that the last 4,000 years of Western history, not world history, but Western history, can be divided into three primary religious periods. The first was the pagan period, characterized by polytheism, the belief in a variety of gods and goddesses. Think uh, Greek and Roman mythology, or, or more recently, movies like Thor, or The Clash of the Titans, or Hercules. You know, those movies get at that. That period in Western history lasted uh, approximately 2,000 years, and then it gave away, gave way, I should say, to the second period, the Christian period, characterized by monotheism, Christianity, the belief in one God. Now think about all the cathedrals that were built in Europe during this period. Massive, massive, massive structures. Because underneath was this cultural conviction that the God of Christianity, one God, was a transcendent, massive, supernatural God. That period lasted 15 to 1800 years, and then it gave way to the modern period. That's a period we are in today, characterized by atheism. So we've moved from polytheism to monotheism, to atheism. And so today we live in a world where there is an insistence, a growing insistence, that there are no gods whatsoever. So as a result, and let's just take our culture here in the United States, we live in an increasingly fragmented and fractured culture. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is uh, there's no consensus on why we are here, on who we are, on morality, on marriage, on meaning. And all we are left with is desire. The desire to do whatever anyone wants to do. And so the great heresy in the modern period characterized by atheism isn't to question the existence of God, but instead, it's to question another person's freedom, especially their sexual freedom. Now, don't misunderstand. If you're visiting with us, I do not want you to misunderstand. Jesus has called us to be the salt and light of the world. And so, regardless of the cultural period, religious period we live in, as followers of Jesus Christ, we do not withdraw from culture. We do not reject culture. We go into culture lifting up Jesus Christ. That's our mission as the church of Christ. Now today, what I want to do is I want to tell you the story of one man 
who didn't withdraw from culture, didn't reject culture, no matter how hostile, how difficult the culture was, but instead went into his culture and attempted to call people back to God in that culture, and they completely and totally rejected him. And this is the story of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Maybe one of the greatest men who ever lived. Why? Why can I say that? Because here in the West today, what we have done is we have moved from monotheism to a dominant atheism. But in Israel, in Jeremiah's day, especially Israel in the last three centuries of her existence, and Jeremiah came right at the end, from approximately 900 B.C. to 600 B.C., Israel did the opposite. Israel moved from monotheism back to polytheism. And God called Jeremiah to call Israel back to him. And Israel refused. And Jeremiah's suffering was enormous. Uh, uh, enormous. We'll see that today. But his perseverance was incredible. So one of the ways to think of Jeremiah as a man, uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah, is profound pain and profound perseverance. And I want to unpack that for you now. So grab your Bibles. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. If you access it electronically, turn on your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 20. And the Bible's in front of you. It's around page 775. And we'll pick it up in verse 1. This is just crazy stuff. When the priest, Peshur, son of Immer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten. The priest had the prophet beaten and put in stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. It was public. Now, Pasher is furious about Jeremiah continuing to preach judgment and destruction. That was what we looked at last week in chapters 18 and 19. And Jeremiah keeps saying, God is going to judge Israel unless Israel repents of its uh, polytheism. And, uh, but Pasher, Pasher, this guy, was a leading priest. Jeremiah is a leading prophet. So what do we see? We see here an illustration, a microcosm of culture fracturing, fragmenting. Got the priest, you got the prophet. And it's fracturing from the inside. Israel had rejected Jeremiah's monotheism, and the priests were leading the charge. Verse 3. The next day when Pasher released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord's name for you is not Pasher, but terror on every side. For this is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and all your friends. And your own eyes will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. Now this is the first time in the book of Jeremiah that Jeremiah mentions Babylon by name. Babylon is, Babylon is this brutal, hostile superpower to the north. And here Jeremiah names that superpower and says they are coming and they will destroy what's left 
of Israel, just the little southern kingdom of Judah. And the superpower is going to destroy little, little Israel. And going forward in the rest of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah will name Babylon 170 times in the next 32 chapters. Judgment is coming. It has now been named. Let's pick it up in verse 5. I will deliver all the wealth of this city, that's Jerusalem, into the hands of their enemies, all its products, valuables, treasures of the kings of Judah. They will take it away as plunder and carry it off to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who live in your house, you will go into exile in Babylon, to Babylon. There you will die and be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied. Now this last verse is not insignificant. Jews viewed pagan lands as unclean. So to die and be buried any place outside of Israel was a sign of judgment, a sign of condemnation. And that's what Jeremiah is prophesying here. Now beginning in verse 7, if you look at verse 7, I'll read a portion of this in just a second. Uh, Jeremiah, who has now been beaten, tortured, humiliated in public, hits an emotional wall and expresses his anger and his rage that God has called him into this lifelong ministry of hostility, rejection, and ridicule, and hate. But God was honest with Jeremiah from the beginning. You go back to chapter 1. From the beginning, when he called Jeremiah to Israel, he said, Jeremiah, this is an incredibly tough assignment. And God unpacked that for Jeremiah. But here, Jeremiah is so mad, beginning in verse 7, that he says, God, you deceived me. God didn't deceive him. Let's read. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone in Israel mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Now, those of you that are students, just think how you would like this if you're, this was your experience at your school or your campus each and every day. Verse 9. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Some people said there was actually physical pain that Jeremiah experienced if he didn't stand up and call Israel to repentance. Now suddenly, Jeremiah's mood changes again. As he moves, as his mood moves from panic to praise. So skip down to verse 11. He says, but the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. Now go down to verse 12. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have committed to you my cause. And then verse 13. Sing to the Lord. What? I mean, Jeremiah has just been brutalized. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Now, beginning in verse 12, I'm not going to read it. His mood changes back. 
And Jeremiah continues his lament. What is in a lament? A lament is an expression of despair, grief, pain, sorrow, or loss. But always, 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 Jeremiah continues, he perseveres in his faith. Now, do you see the point? We desperately need this today. Jeremiah says, even though I experience continual rejection and ridicule, and even though I am often outraged and overwhelmed, I will live above my moods, my emotions, and I will love and serve you, God. One of the most remarkable men in all of history. Now the question I want to wrestle with the rest of the morning is how did he do this? How, how can we live like this? How can we today persevere and love in what um, increasingly appears to be a dangerous, fractured world? How can we do that without capitulating to our moods? I happen to think that this is one of the most important questions for the church of Jesus Christ today. In light of the growing chaos. So what I want to do is I want to give you four marks of persevering loving faith. Man, and I want you to think about these. I want you to get these. If you take notes, man, uh, write these down. But to get there, we've got to make a switch. We've got to go to Jeremiah's second book that comes right after Jeremiah, the book entitled Lamentations. So turn about 45 pages ahead to Lamentations chapter 3. Now, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because Lamentations gives us a picture of Jeremiah on the inside. What was going on inside Jeremiah? Now, when we come to Lamentations chapter 3, the destruction of Israel has happened. It's past tense. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah looks ahead and warns. In Lamentations, Jeremiah looks back and he laments. It's, Jeremiah's experience is sort of like you walking through the ruins of Washington, D.C. following the destruction of the United States. The pain is not diminished. So look at verse 13. We'll pick it up in chapter 3 and verse 13 of Lamentations. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me, God has filled me with bitter herbs and, and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. What a metaphor. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. Pain is profound. But so is his perseverance. So go down to verse 21. Here we come to some of the most loved words in all of the Bible. Verse 21, yet this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope or depend on him. To the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Now remember, Jeremiah did not write these words on vacation. So mark number one. Loving, persevering faith means you have clarity about the character of God. Jeremiah wasn't fuzzy about who God is. He wasn't tentative. Well, I, I think. Nor was Jeremiah's faith merely theoretical or intellectual. His vision of who God is dominated his life. And I believe, this is just me personally, I believe it kept him from suicide. Now think about these famous words in verse 22 and verse 23. Let's get them up on the screen. We're going to keep them there because I'm going to walk you through this. We read these and, and we think, man, those are rich words. But when we understand the context, I mean, maybe Jeremiah was sitting in the ruins of the temple when he penned this. Maybe he had just walked by a mass, mass grave site. His family, friends buried there. We don't know. Imagine Jeremiah's anguish as his beloved country has been destroyed. Yet something deep inside him says, yes, our loss is catastrophic, but I will not be defeated by this because there is a deeper reality I cling to. And now he starts to write. I, I, I believe God isn't just loving, but his love is great. Look at the verse. Uh, that God isn't just sometimes compassionate, but his compassions never fail. Uh, that the God I know isn't uh, just a little faithful, great is his faithfulness. If you believe it, you live it. And Jeremiah lived it, and the reason Jeremiah lived it is explained in verses 22 and 23. He understood the, the greatness of God's love. Uh, the um, constancy of his compassion. That his faithfulness is unending, it's an eternal. And if you believe it, you'll live it. Then, let's go to verse 24. Uh, Jeremiah continues and he says, the Lord is my portion. Now we have to work with this for a moment because the Hebrew concept of saying God is my portion uh, is saying God is my share, God is my inheritance, uh, a, a reference to inheriting the land. But it's also a metaphor. It's a metaphor for saying, God, uh, you are my center. You are my present, you are my future. It's saying, my life revolves around Jesus. <laughs> not my kids, not my job, not doing this, doing that, not my circumstances, even if they're wonderful. 
It's saying sin and situations may blur the character of God, but they never, never negate it. Doesn't happen in your life. You see, and I've said this a thousand times over the years, what you believe about God at any given moment in time is the most important thing about you. There is nothing in your life more important, more defining. And God never asks for a piece of you or for most of you when it's convenient. As we saw last week, he is the potter, we are the clay. He demands all of you all the time. And because God is the potter, he is our portion. And anything else is a denial of his love, his compassion, his faithfulness. Now let me go on, Mark number two. Uh, what is um, persevering, lo uh, loving faith? Uh, steady faith, it's dependence upon the goodness of God. Uh, it's alive. Uh, we see this in the first part of verse 25. Uh, look at uh, this line, and the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. Now other translations sometimes use the word depend. In Hebrew, hope and depend are the same, so to hope is to depend. To depend is to hope. Because unlike our use of hope, hope in the Bible is a statement of certainty, a confident expectation. So today we say, well, you know, I hope it'll stop raining, or I hope the Cubs will win the World Series. But it's iffy. That's not how it's used in the Bible. Jeremiah says, the Lord is good to those who are confident in him. It's a statement of assurance. So it's Joshua, for example, praying and commanding the sun to stand still, and it does. It's David taking on Goliath. In the New Testament, it's Peter following Jesus, walking on water. It's you uh, rising above uh, what you fear. What you fear most because you are confident in the goodness of God in your life. And it's not an abstract thing, it's a real thing. Now, um, what does this hope or this dependence look like? Well, one way to, to describe it is it's the difference between believing a chair exists and sitting in it. You are depending upon the chair you are sitting in right now. Uh, you are certain it's going to keep you up. You didn't look at it and say, well, maybe yes, maybe no. So instead of believing the chair you're sitting in exists, you are depending upon it. You are placing uh, your, your, your hope in it. It's a difference between dating Jesus and marrying Jesus. And way too many of us just date Jesus. You know, once every couple of weeks on Sunday. Now, Jeremiah was a tough guy. He um, ate a couple of nails for breakfast every morning just to get through his day. 
Uh, he was a man's man, but the guy had a tender heart. And Jeremiah knew at the core of his being that God loved him. That God loved him deeply, or he wouldn't have survived. He felt God's love deeply. Why? Because he chose to sit in the chair of God's goodness. And he based his life, he predicated his life on the goodness of God, not his situations, and certainly not his moods. Because his moods were all over the place. All right, characteristic number three. Deep, persevering faith, in contrast to superficial, temporary faith, is characterized by a passion to experience God. You want to experience God. This is the second half of verse 25. Uh, look at the words. To the one who seeks him. Now, seek is an active verb. It, it, it describes the activity of pursuing God, like a, a man pursues the woman he loves. It's the, the concept of looking for, searching for God, giving yourself to it. A couple of years ago, I got my hair cut, and after getting my hair cut, um, I w was in a conversation with a woman that cuts my hair and was just thinking about our conversation, and I just walked out without my credit card. The next day when I went to use my credit card, I realized my credit card wasn't there, and I had this feeling of panic, right? Well, don't be so pious, right? Yeah. <laughs> and there was one thought that dominated my mind. Seek credit card. And that's the concept here. Seek the living God. It's not a game. Uh, Christianity isn't a, a, a therapy. It, it, it's life or, or, or death. Uh, I found my credit card. You seek God, you, you will find uh, God. You give yourself to discovering and delighting in the riches of all that Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. You discover God. You ask God to open your eyes uh, so that you might uh, know, you might experience the love of God, how wide and long and high and deep it is, as Paul says. You ask God to, to uh, uh, fill you so that you can feel that love, uh, you can experience that love, and we don't talk about this enough in Bible church circles, so that uh, your heart burns with his love. This is Jeremiah. God is good to the one who seeks him. It's running to God. Those of you that have children, grandchildren, it's running to God as a child runs to a parent. And even though you today are surrounded by people who've had enough of God, who want nothing to do with God, who think you're nuts because you believe in God, you say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to know God. I mean, think of the psalm. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's an invitation to experience, to feeling, to sensing. Jesus says, seek and you shall find. 
That's a promise. So, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Seek and you shall find. Hold those together. Actually, it's verse 25. Now, two things about seeking here. Let me unpack this. Uh, look at verse 21. Back up to verse 21, the front end of verse 21. Jeremiah says, this I call to mind. The, what do you call to mind, Jeremiah? What's he talking about? What is the antecedent of this? Well, it's all the promises, all the stories, all the attributes of God revealed in God's word. Uh, uh, what did Jeremiah, he tells us in chapter 15, he ate God's word. He studied God's word. He memorized God's word. A person who seeks God loves and gives himself, herself to the study of God's word because it is how we get to know God. It's how... It points us to God. Now bounce down to another very interesting verse, verse 55. This is the second aspect of seeking. Jeremiah says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. Now don't most of us curse God in the pit? <laughs> when we find ourselves there, aren't we angry at God? Aren't we saying, how in the world could this happen? Does God really exist? Does, you know, on and on and on. And we find ourselves distancing ourselves from God. What did Jeremiah do in the pit? He called upon God. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. So we give ourselves to the study of the word of God and we get on our knees and we pray. And we say, Lord, would you have mercy on me, man? Right now I am so furious at my husband. Or I'm so stressed about this situation at work. Or, or, or this friend, or, 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 or this family member, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray from the pit. You see, a person who seeks God is a person who knows the word of God and a person who gives themselves to praying, especially, especially from the pit. Now let's, let's go on. Let's go to the final mark. Uh, what is this, um, how do we persevere and how do we love as, as culture becomes increasingly chaotic and dangerous? Well, what we see here in Jeremiah's testimony is that uh, that kind of faith, that persevering faith involves submission in suffering to the plan of God. And so look at verse 26. We'll, um, we'll put it up here. Jeremiah says in verse 26, we got a couple strange comments. He says, it's good to wait quietly. And then if you bounce to verse 28, he says, let him sit alone in silence. What, what does that mean? Jeremiah is describing the refusal to uh, revolt against God, to, to reject God, to turn in his prophet's card. But he's also describing at a deeper level a, 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 a refusal to complain, a refusal to whine, a refusal to lapse into self-pity and, and anger. He, he's describing a refusal to turn to alcohol. Marijuana. Today, road rage, abuse, uh, uh, picket. He's describing a remarkable acceptance and, and obedience to God's assignment even when it's, hear me, terrible. 
So wait quietly, sit alone, means let God be God. And you pray like crazy from the pit. You pray for healing. You pray for divine supernatural intervention. God does it. And you take it if he doesn't. So what is this submission? Well, submission is a soldier saying yes to the commanding officer, even though he knows it's probably going to cost him his life as soon as he lands at Omaha Beach. It's Dr. Martin Luther King saying, I'm going to obey God's call on my life, and I am going to stand in the face of injustice, even though they shoot me, and they did. It's you saying, you know what? In light of what's going on around in our culture, we're going to give ourselves to foster care and adoption, even though it's uh, incredibly messy, complicated. It's maybe you saying, you know what, we're going we're to give the Streamwood campus a year as the church is asking us to, and we're going to be a part of that nucleus because we want this thing to go well. Thousands of uh, different things. It's submission and suffering to the, to the plan of God. It's saying yes to God. Now, who does this? Well, I'll tell you who does this. People who are committed to Christ, not their comfort. Now, let me take this a step further. And I want you to hang with me. Look at verse 32. Jeremiah says at the beginning, though he brings grief, God brings grief grief. This is an incredible statement of the sovereign plan of God over everything, the good and the grief. Jeremiah is saying, my God brings what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. And he says the same thing more explicitly in verse 38, look at verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? So Jeremiah's vision, and this is what I long for you, that Jeremiah's vision is big enough to understand that somehow God superintends both good and evil without ever being the cause of evil and without ever removing human responsibility. As I said last week, it's a mystery. But if you get this, it changes how you view calamity and catastrophe, whether it's personal or national. And it's absolutely critical if we as the church of Jesus Christ are going to make a difference in our culture today. So there's four marks. There's calamity, there's dependence, there's passion, there's submission. But the reality is all four of those are beyond us. We're not equal to this. We're not equal to our suffering. So what are we to do? We are to look to Jesus. Jeremiah is a picture of Jesus. He foreshadows, he points to Jesus Jeremiah weeping over Jesus for or weeping over Jerusalem foreshadows Jesus weeping over Jerusalem six centuries later. Uh, the ridicule, the rejection, the, the torture Jeremiah experienced for Israel points to 
the infinitely greater suffering that Jesus experienced for us when he went to the cross. Jeremiah's perseverance pictures Jesus' perseverance. And the reason I say this is the only way you will ever be weak, equal to your sufferings. And you will avoid collapsing in chaos is by understanding the cost of Jesus' suffering for you. Perseverance isn't a matter of you looking within and trying to conjure it up, work it up. It's a matter of you taking your eyes off yourself, taking your eyes off your circumstances and fixing them on, as Hebrews says, Jesus. So think about it. God abandoned his son on the cross, sentencing him to death in our place for our sins. And the most painful experience in life is often abandonment, rejection, and loneliness. And that's precisely what Jesus experienced for you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the closer the relationship the greater the pain when that abandonment happens. As a matter of fact, it was so great, the pain was so great, that even before Jesus was crucified, we are told, he sweat drops of blood. Surface blood vessels on his forehead, uh, in his scalp, were bursting just as he thought, merely thought, thought about the enormity of the suffering ahead. So when I say to look to Jesus, I'm saying look to his sufferings because they dramatically reveal, look to the extent of his sufferings because they dramatically reveal the extent of his love. And that creates a certainty, a confidence. And it enables you to run to him, to, to, to stand with him. And to feel and experience that love when things around you are crazy. When you look to Jesus as you should, you will persevere as you should. But you can't, you can't, and you won't on your own. Let's pray. Father, my desire is that you would give us a a view of suffering that enables us as the church of Jesus Christ to be a part of the solution. Would you drive by your spirit this into our lives that you will raise up Jeremiah's among us who in spite of the pain 
persevere to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.